Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on how schema affect anxiety and depression. I am your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. We are going to define schema, explain how they're formed, discuss why they may be inaccurate or outdated, and identify strategies to address unhelpful schema. Most of us are familiar with schema, but for anybody who's not, schema are mental representations or beliefs about a particular person or event that we repeat and hopefully adjust throughout our lives. One of the easiest ones we can use to explain to people is we have schema about traffic lights. We expect that when the traffic light is red, after that it will turn green and then yellow, and then red again. But if for some reason it didn't follow that pattern, that would not fit with our schema. When you drive up to a traffic light, you anticipate, you expect that it is going to follow that normal pattern. And that is a result of your schema, the schema that you hold about traffic lights. We have form schema about ourselves and our goodness from the time we are knee-high to a grasshopper. We have schema about going to the doctor. You know, what happens when you go to the doctor? Um, you know, a lot of us have that schema that we're going to go to the doctors and we're going to sit there for 45 minutes past, past our appointment time and yada, yada. But you have certain schema based on your doctor. I had one doctor who was amazing, and I have a dentist right now who's the same way, always on time, never have I been there and they've run more than five minutes late? So my schema for going to those particular providers is that they are going to be on time, so I better be a little bit early. But I had to adjust my schema when I started going to them because I was used to the other way. We have schema about job interviews, how it's going to go. If you go into a job interview and the first thing they do is... Instead of sitting down and talking to you, they, they take you and have you do a drug screen. That might be a little weird. You expect when you have a job interview, you're going to meet somebody, you're going to go sit in an office, they're going to ask you some questions. That's your schema. 
We have the schema about news media, and this one is one that has changed over the years. My mother was a journalist, and my stepfather was a journalist. Back when they started in journalism, journalism tended to be much more um, devoid of opinion. It tended to be much more objective, and that seems to have changed over the last 30 or 40 years or so. We expect, and they expect, the news media to be very objective. However, you know, that schema isn't holding true nearly as much anymore. And part of that is because so many stations are competing for our attention that they're having to use clickbait and they're having to um, present particular points of view in order to try to uh, attract uh, viewership. So we want to look at what the uh, motivation is. A lot of times it's not malicious. It is... Um, capitalistic, if you will, but you may have to adjust those schema anymore. We don't want to assume that everything that we see on, on the news or in print is the God's honest truth. We need to investigate. We have schema about flu season. You know, what's going to happen, how likely we are to get it, how many people are going to get sick. We have schema about the stock market. And this is one, you know, if you've watched it over the past couple of years, don't watch it right now because it is really freaking scary. But over the past year and a half, two years, the market analysts have been telling us, oh, we're getting ready for a crash, we're getting ready for a crash, and then it doesn't happen. You know, they say, we have these indicators that tell us that every time this has happened in the past, we've gone into a bear market or whatever, and those didn't come true. So there are a lot of things with our stock market schema, for example, that have had to be adjusted because we're when we see these indicators and this thing doesn't happen, we're left going, well, I'm glad, but I don't know, you know, what to expect now. I have no idea how to predict if my prior schema didn't work. We have schema about the coronavirus based on what we're hearing, and we have schema about the safety or dangerousness of other people. We have lots of schema. That's kind of my point. And these are just some highlights that most of us can relate to. We can think, yeah, you know, when I think about a job interview or flu season or, or something, this is what I anticipate. And if we can anticipate, then we've got a schema. We've got something in our brain telling us this is what to expect. Schema can be, think, can be thought of as a type of metacognition. It helps us think about a situation. It's the way we think about a situation. If our schema about something is primarily negative, then we are going to expect a negative outcome. General categories of schema, and this comes from you know, schema therapy. There actually is a um, philosophy called schema therapy. We have schema about security and abandonment. And as I go through these, I want you to think to yourself um, how they correlate to a certain extent with the psychosocial crises that Erickson said we had to go through. Uh, because a lot of them do sound very similar to the uh, trust versus mistrust, the um, autonomy versus um, dependence, and, you know, the rest of the stages that he went through. So think about Erickson, and this is, it doesn't exactly parallel because we form schemas throughout our lives, and Erickson said we went through these stages in a very uh, sequential process at certain ages, but I just found it to be interesting because a lot of our schemas are formed when we are younger. Now, we can adjust them, but that means we have to think about adjusting them. We don't want to just hold on to a schema we formed 
when we were four years old without checking to see if it's still valid. So we have schema about security and abandonment. How safe are our relationships and how lovable are we? Do people want to be around us? We have schema about trust and safety versus abuse. Are people generally trustworthy and safe to be around or is the world a dangerous place we have schema about emotional support versus emotional deprivation and invalidation think about people who have borderline personality disorder or who are um, who have always tended to have a uh, low threshold for emotional dysregulation a lot of their environments were very invalidating and they were always told that they were wrong or they weren't provided the tools to deal with their emotions they weren't provided the support to handle that emotional dysregulation so they formed a schema when they were young that emotions are powerful and uncontrollable and really scary to deal with other people who had good emotional support and had assistance with emotional regulation when they were growing up feel much more comfortable experiencing emotions we have schema that refer relate to self-determination how much of our life do we control and our vulnerability to emotional or physical harm can we get out there and do something or if we step outside of our comfort zone are we going to get squished like a bug either emotionally or physically you know how dangerous is it out there and how vulnerable are we if we take a chance on industry versus inferiority to quote uh, erickson positivity and optimism versus negativity and pessimism which one serves us best is the world generally optimistic do we view the world and talk about the world in positive optimistic hopeful empowered terms or do we use the negative and pessimistic metacognitions where we see that danger pretty much everywhere we go there are schema about acceptance and contentment versus hypercriticalness some people live their life and they accept their strengths they accept their weaknesses they are content with who they are they have a good self-image other people are hypercritical of themselves and maybe others they're always looking for faults they're always looking to dig and instead of looking at it in terms of okay this is a place where i might be able to improve it is looking at it in terms of this is a weakness and this makes you unlovable or unworthy we have schema related to competent competence or defectiveness are we capable of doing things are we functioning or are we broken are we intact or are we broken independence versus dependence how much do we have to rely on people if you're raised in a environment in which your caregivers are extremely enmeshed then you may believe that you need to be in a dependent state if you are raised in an environment in which your caregivers are supportive and empowering then you may believe that you have the capacity and that you're supposed to be more independent self-concept and self-esteem go along with you know kind of follow shortly after that with enmeshment um, if somebody has a good self-concept and good self-esteem they are okay with who they are versus do they need to be a chameleon and conform to the wills and wishes of everyone else in order to be lovable the next set of schemas refers to success and empowerment and 
once we get through these, we're going to talk about how they impact our anxiety and depression. Success and empowerment. Can we be successful? Do we have the power to make a difference in our lives? Or are we going to fail at everything we try? We have schema about our ability to control our situation and our ability for self-control, physical, emotional, cognitive, versus thinking that we have no self-control, we have no impulse control, and we need to be subjugating ourselves to the will of other people. And finally, belongingness and connectedness versus alienation. We have schema about do we fit in or don't we? Are we going to be rejected? And you can look at these. And obviously, the things that are on the right side of the slash are the ones that probably promote feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, or anxiety. So you can see kind of where we're going here. Schema are formed based on the interpretation and memories of experiences. We don't have a schema about something until we experience it or we see someone else experience it. Then we're like, okay, that's a pretty good thing. Or, okay, that's a really bad thing. When I was in fourth grade, we had, I was going to a school and the, we didn't have walls. Everybody had pods, but there were no actual walls between the classrooms. And I remember being in fourth grade and there was this fifth grade teacher who, when he would get angry, he would pull the pupils that he was angry with into the library, which is, was in the middle of the pod, and scream at them until his face turned red. My schema Related to that teacher was one that he was very dangerous, he was very scary, and that he was going to scream at me because what I saw was him screaming at students. I didn't notice the fact that he wasn't screaming at the other 18 or was not screaming at the other 18 in his class. I noticed the ones he was screaming at. So my schema with that teacher was one of fear. And guess what? When I went to fifth grade, guess who I got? Um, and getting through the first part of fifth grade was a little bit challenging because I was terrified to go to school because of that schema. And then finally, we had a parent-teacher conference and, you know, he explained what was going on. Mom explained what was going on. Everybody, you know, talked and I felt safer. So I changed my schema about him and I understood that, okay, he only screams until he's red in the face if you make a big boo-boo. So I did my best not to make a big boo-boo. But, you know, that helped me alter my schema. Schema are a shortcut the brain creates to help us better anticipate future situations. We know what we're walking into. I, we have schema about things that we do every day. You have schema about this class. You know, you expected that you would turn on your computer, you would log in, and you would go through the process that you always do. And if it didn't happen that way, then you might have to change your schema a little. Interpretation of events, you know, even if we have schema um, or if we don't have one yet and we're forming a, a, a schema, interpretation is impacted by our age and prior similar experiences. Remember that children are, especially under the age of like nine, tend to be very egocentric. So they think that most of what happens has to do with them in some way. They caused it or they should have prevented it or, you know, somehow they were involved. They think dichotomously. There is no alternate thing here. If they're in a family where they've got a caregiver who has an active addiction and leaves or goes to jail or just whatever, the child may think it's my fault that my parent used drugs and it's my fault that my parent left. Um, it's, you know, they're very personal and they think 
you know, they either love me or they hate me. So my parent left. So my parent hates me now. And there, there's no, you know, my parent doesn't like that behavior and my parent loves me. That's one of the things that we have to work with our children when they're very young, being very articulate about what we're angry about. You know, I love you. However, I really don't like this behavior that you're doing. So they start understanding the difference and forming schema about appropriate behavior, as well as forming schema about their lovability, even when they make a mistake. So the person's age and prior experiences start giving you, start giving them um, a framework in order to form these schema. If you're thinking about something front in, in a five-year-old's mind, you know, how would a five-year-old understand it? Well, that's their schema. Now, we change things as we grow up. You know, when you were three, four, five, you may have thought that there were monsters in your closet or under your bed or something. By the time you're older, you know, you've outgrown that and you've realized that doesn't exist because you've had multiple nights that you've gone to bed and multiple times that you've looked under the bed and guess what? There's never been anything there. So you have used fact in order to counter or alter those schema and the person's cognitive de development and metacognition also impact how we form our schema if they are have good cognitive development you know if they are past that egocentric dichotomous place then they have the ability to consider a better ability to consider other opportunities or other alternative suggestions or solutions to what's going on and metacognition remember is how we think about thinking if people tend to be negative in their metacognitions if they tend to be pessimistic that's going to increase their anxiety increase their feelings of threat increase their awareness of threats in the environment and decrease their awareness of safety triggers in the environment so people can for continually form negative schema based on what they're noticing if they are not noticing the positive then they can't factor that into their schema people with trauma histories may notice and remember more threats in the environment because they tend to be more hyper vigilant in their state of being and in their thinking they're noticing those threats they're always looking for um, whether they're going to be safe if you've had a bad experience with something then you likely expect another bad experience i remember when back when h1n1 the swine flu was going around uh we had to drive to tallahassee from where we lived in order to get our kids the h1n1 vaccination because they didn't have any in central florida and that was a little bit of a bummer but we went there and it was this huge you know line of people because people were coming in from all over the state to try to get these vaccinations and they had nurses and paramedics and all kinds of people administering the shots well, lo and behold, we got a paramedic who was administering the shot, and the paramedic was not gentle like a lot of nurses are. You know, they're used to doing things quickly. And both of my kids had, you know, got this shot that was, you know, very traumatic for them. Instead of being something that, you know, was not pleasant, they remember it to this very day. Please don't tell me... I when we go to get this flu shot, please don't tell me a paramedic's going to be doing it. Like, no, it's, it's going to be a nurse. You know, you're good. We're not, you know, we don't have to go through that again. But they are terrified of paramedics now. And, you know, I haven't had a way for, uh, thank, thankfully, we haven't had any other situations where we've interacted with paramedics because I'm sure there are some that are very gentle. But, 
you know, nurses are really good at trying to help quell people's fears because they know a lot of us really are afraid of needles. And, you know, it's important to help them adjust that. But my kids think of nurses as, okay, if I have to get a shot, I want a nurse to give it to me. Please don't with the paramedics. And, and that's their schema. And I understand where that came from and no amount of explaining is going to change that for them right now. The thunderstorms, for example, in Middle Tennessee, we had, what was it, last week or the week before? It all kind of runs together for me right now. Uh, we had that EF4 tornado that came through here and decimated our area. You know, we, have, we now have, quote, skylights in Walmart and Lowe's and those kind of places. Um, and normally, I wouldn't think of thunderstorms as a scary thing. However, after that particular poignant incident, uh, we're supposed to have severe weather coming through here tonight. And I can tell you, even though I know the probability of another, you know, EF anything coming through here tonight is pretty minuscule, I can tell you in the back of my mind, there's a little bit of anxiety because my schema was changed to say, you know, thunderstorms may may be a bigger deal than you're used to now that you're up here in Tornado Alley. And I don't like that feeling. Uh, but it's important for me to use my facts and use all my cognitive behavioral techniques to counter that in order to reduce anxiety. Otherwise, I could get myself all worked up. You know, I feel a lot of empathy for people who are in Crossville or down in Hermitage and Donaldson where they really got the brunt of it. Um, and they lost their houses because, you know, they're hearing this now and they're already getting the severe weather alerts and they're already feeling some of that anxiety resurge. I mean, it's just ripping the Band-Aid off. Recognizing that our schema can change by a particularly poignant incident, but we also can change it back if we need to because we can use some of those cognitive tools that help us focus on fact-based reasoning instead of emotion-based reasoning. Remember that schema can become outdated. What was dangerous to you as a child may not be dangerous anymore. You wouldn't leave a four-year-old home alone. You know, that would be scary for them. Uh, but, you know, when they are 14 or, heaven forbid, 24, you know, they can stay home alone and they are you know, they are safe. What is scary to a four-year-old is often not scary to a 14-year-old because they change their schema. But if they haven't had the opportunity or they never, you know, put those check marks in place, then they may still be um, scared or feel threatened by it. We need, when we feel anxious, when we feel threatened, when we feel powerless, we need to look at what we're telling ourselves, look at our schema and go, is this still accurate in the present time? Is this still accurate right now? It probably was very accurate back then from our interpretation, but is it still accurate and is, is it still a threat now? And if not, what's different? Other things that can outdate schema. What was dangerous to you in the past, like an abusive significant other, uh, may not apply in the present. Your current significant other may not be abusive at all. So when that person, when your new significant other starts raising their voice, they get upset about something because everybody gets upset. Old schema may kick in and you may go into that fight or flight mode. And it's important for people to recognize is this current situation the same as the old one? 
Or is there something different? Is there something qualitatively different about this situation? I also have emotional dysregulation up here because it doesn't have to be about somebody else or something else. In the past, if people have had difficulty regulating their emotions and struggled with emotional dysregulation, non-suicidal self-injury, you know, anything like that, then they may feel anxious. They may feel overwhelmed about the possibility of having to deal with feelings now because it's terrifying. They, they remember what it was like in the past and they remember feeling like their emotions were oppressive and uncontrollable. So we want to help them evaluate in the present. You know, now that you've been going to therapy, you have all these new tools, you are older and wiser um, and have all these other support systems available. Are emotions as dangerous to you? Are they really still that dangerous or are, are you more in control of them? Do you have more ability to manage your emotions? And the expectations that applied to something 20 years ago may not apply now. Cancer is a perfect example. Um, back 20, 30 years ago, if you got breast cancer, for example, that was a really big deal and there, there weren't a lot of treatments for it or not a lot of good treatments. Now people can get breast cancer and they've got medications, which I'm sure you've seen advertised, that can help them even with advanced stages of breast cancer live for many, many years. Um, even with having that cancer. Same thing is true for HIV. Back in the 80s, when people got HIV, um, and maybe even late 70s, I don't remember exactly when it really became prominent, but it was a huge big deal because we didn't understand, we didn't know how to treat it, we didn't know how to deal with it, we didn't have the medications that we've got now. Now, people can have HIV and live very long, productive lives because we have medications that are able to help them live those kinds of lives. So our schema, if somebody gets a diagnosis of one of those things right now, for example, um, if they are older and their schema is still back in the past of, oh my gosh, this is a death sentence, we need to help them check the facts and see if in the present that is still true or if there are new treatments and new hope that's been offered. Schema can be inaccurate because of emotional valence. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. We tend to notice threats when we are in a dysphoric mood. If somebody is already depressed, anxious, angry, grieving, they are probably going to notice the icky things then as opposed to noticing the positive things. I know after, you know, my mom died, I was in that state of intense grief right after it happened. I wasn't noticing what I normally would notice at her house. Normally, I would notice the um, eastern towhees that came to her bird feeder all the time. I love the sounds of the eastern towhees. I love the sounds of a couple of the other birds that used to visit outside at her bird feeding station. I don't, I don't even remember any birds being around at that point in time because I wasn't noticing the positive things. I was noticing stuff that was in, in alignment with how I was feeling. When people are depressed or anxious, we need to help them force themselves not to ignore the negative, but to also notice the positive because negative things, threatening things have more emotional valence. They are more powerful in our minds than some of the positive things. It's just a survival mechanism. That's the way we've evolved. <clears throat> People can also have inaccurate schema because of what I call fear-mongering headlines. There's a lot of clickbait out there. They want you to come to their website, and they may put out a headline that you read it, and you're like, oh, my gosh, it's a catastrophe. 
Um, and if you don't read the, the story in its entirety, or if the story only pre presents half of the picture, then people may only have half of the knowledge, which may make their schema inaccurate. And conflicting or inaccurate information also goes along with lack of knowledge that can make our schema inaccurate. If we're told the wrong stuff, then we're going to expect the wrong thing. How do we form healthy schema? Well, I have the acronym. I should have made it uh, bold. CRAVES down here. And we've talked about this before in attachment. Well, schema's the same way. People need consistency and predictability in their world. As caregivers, when children are growing up, we need to help them see the consistency and the predictability, but also be able to understand when things don't go quite as planned and <clears throat> integrate that into their schema. For example, you know, most of the time they get sick, they're down for a couple of days, they take some medicine or maybe not, they get better, voila. You know, that's their schema about getting sick. But what happens if grandma gets sick and maybe it's something worse than your average cold, but in a little kid's mind, sick is sick. There are no different diagnoses. Grandma gets sick, goes to the hospital, and never comes home. How's that child's schema going to change next time they get sick? You know, we need to make sure they understand that there are big differences between having a common cold and having whatever grandma had. Or, you know, you are younger, you are stronger. Grandma had COPD. Grandma's, grandma was sick before she got the flu. And then, you know, she got the flu and, and died. Helping them understand the difference so they can alter their schema in a meaningful way is going to be really important. We need to be responsive to people when they are having, you know, emotional responses. We need to be there to help them manage their emotions as well as manage their thoughts. A lot of times when people get stressed out or anxious or angry, you know, their thoughts are flying through their mind and they can't focus. A responsive caregiver or supportive other is able to help somebody take a breath, take a break, stop for a second and go, okay, let's, let's look at the facts here. Let's look at what's going on. Or you know, let's try both doing some belly breathing so, you know, we can, so I can help you tone down that HPA axis, so I can help you get a clearer head, so you can think a little more slowly. And depending on the age of the person, you know, you're going to use different interventions, but we need to be emotionally as well as cognitively and even physically responsive. If someone is freaking out, you know, what is it that they need um, in order to help them stay safe, in order to help them regulate their own thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. We need to provide acceptance and attention, recognizing people for who they are as lovable, not for what they do. You know, that can be awesome too. You know, we want to give them kudos and praise for things they do well, but also helping them recognize that they are accepted and lovable for who they are. You know, you are a wonderful person. I may not like this behavior. Or you are a wonderful person, and I am so glad that or so proud of you for getting straight A's on your report card. But making sure you acknowledge both the person and the behavior separately. Validation is important. You know, sometimes we feel like we're going crazy. Sometimes we feel like, you know, we just can't take another step. And that empathy and validation is really important for people to go, you know, if I were in your shoes, I can't imagine what it would be like. Or, you know, I can only imagine how overwhelming that must be. And people can feel like, okay, somebody gets it. 
That's like, um, I think I've shared this story with you before, or whatever word I'm looking for. One of my teachers in, in college said the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is finding somebody that is stuck in a well and it's cold and it's dark and looking down the well from the, from the top, looking down going, wow, it really must suck to be down there because it looks dark and cold. You know, hate to be you. Um, I'm here, but you know, good luck. Which, you know, at least you're there. They know you're there. Empathy is putting on that rappelling gear and going down into the well with them. You can still get back up because you got the rappelling gear on. But empathy is going down into that well and experiencing a little sliver of what it's like to be in their shoes at that point in time. And validating, wow, this is overwhelming or this is powerful or, you know, whatever it is. Empathy and encouragement is really important as well. So they understand that you're at least trying to walk a few steps in their shoes, that they understand you're really trying to experience what it's like to be in the dark place that they may be in and encouraging them, you know, noticing instead of going, oh, it can't be that bad, saying, wow, this is really tough right now. You know, I know that you can get through this and making sure that we provide that encouragement to, you know, think of people who are experiencing depression and anxiety as being stuck in that well what kind of encouragement would you give them you'd want to validate how hard it is for them and what else do they need to know that there is hope and finally safety and support in solution generation there are lots of s's there people need to know that they're safe that they can trust other people maybe not everybody else but that they can trust and they can trust themselves and that generally they're safe when they're home, when they're in their normal places. And assistance with support in solution generation. Some people just need help brainstorming. They get stuck in that, you know, proverbial box and they can't see any other solutions. So sometimes getting a second or third or fourth point of view can help people alter their schema a little bit. They're seeing this is the way it's supposed to be. And you can say, okay, normally it's this way, but what if? Or what if this? So solution generation is a way to help people identify alternatives so they might be able to adjust their schema to be a little bit more flexible. So what do we do to adjust these schema? Identify and evaluate current schema that are causing distress. This is one of those cognitive behavioral things. What are you thinking that is contributing to your sense of fear, anxiety, hopelessness, helplessness, anger? What types of thoughts? What, why is it that you are having these feelings right now? Why are you perceiving a threat? You know, let, help me understand. Describe for me your environment, your cognitive environment. What's going on in your head so I can understand and we can walk through this together. Then start looking at those schema and evaluating the facts. You know, with coronavirus right now, that's a huge thing. And some people are just totally panicked. And other people, like my in-laws, are still going out to eat and going to ball games and kids' birthday parties. <laughs> and we're like, uh, you're in your 70s. You're kind of in that highest risk group right now. What are you doing? But that's what they are doing. And you know, so evaluating the facts and helping people examine it and make decisions for themselves. The decisions we make might not be the same as the ones that they make, but we can help them look at the schema. To figure out, you know, if they feel, oh, this is no big deal. All right, let's look at the facts. Is that true for you? Um, 
you know, for a lot of people, 10, I think it's 10 to 39 years old, that has the lowest mortality rate and the lowest risk of anybody from what the World Health Organization is saying. So if you're in that group, you're probably going, oh, you know, I'm, I'm still feeling pretty confident. If you have underlying physical conditions, you may be going, yeah, thinking I might want to uh, cur curtail some of my activities for a little while. Helping people evaluate facts. Address cognitive distortions, especially overgeneralization and personalization. You know, if they think that every time I get a shot, it's going to hurt. You know, let's evaluate that. Let's look for exceptions. And, you know, I've got lots of videos on handling uh, cognitive distortions and unhelpful thoughts. But it's important to really figure out ways to combat those. Personalization. What are three other explanations why this happened that have nothing to do with me? You know, that's something that older people, you know, teenagers and older, do better at. A five-year-old is probably going to really struggle with that because that's cognitively above where they are right now. But we can walk them through it. And at least if they talk through it, then they might be able to develop a little bit more psychological flexibility. We can also explore schema related to old situations with fresh eyes. For example, if you're working with somebody whose parent or caregiver abandoned them, they may feel that it was their fault and they're completely unlovable. All right, so let's look at that. You know, now that you are 30, let's look at back at that situation. Why did your parent leave? You know, did it have anything to do with you when you were six months old? And, you know, the facts of the situation probably point more toward the caregiver was struggling with something and chose to leave for some reason that had little or nothing to do with that child, or maybe they left because they thought it was in the best interest of the child because they loved them so much. But encouraging people to look back over these old schema that they're holding that are telling them that they are unsafe, unlovable, um, broken in some way. Schema restructuring. And, you know, there's a lot that we can do. When people feel a sense of abandonment, we need to help them look for exceptions. You know, Let's talk about some relationships where you've had a sense of security. What would it take in a relationship? What would that relationship need to look like in order for you to feel secure? Educate people about attachment and, you know, characteristics like craves that can help them figure out how to de develop healthy relationships and start looking at relationships in terms of, how many characteristics of a secure, healthy relationship does this have instead of how many characteristics of a relationship does this have that shows that I'm going to be abandoned? Have them start looking for the positive. Trust and safety versus abuse. What does that look like for you? What would need to happen in terms of relationships and your environment for you to feel like you are safe? What could you do? And what exists right now in your environment that is, does indicate that you are safe? Encouraging people, again, to notice. For emotional support, a lot of times, um, especially if we grew up in um, emotionally rejecting environments, we may not know how to act ask for emotional support. Encouraging people to learn how to ask for emotional support, learning what they need for emotional support, developing skills. Maybe they do still have difficulty with emotion dysregulation. That's fine. Okay, so let's create a new schema in which you are able to modulate 
your emotions more effectively. You know, so come into therapy right now, lots of emotional dysregulation. One of the goals of therapy would be to develop the tools to modulate those emotions and develop the schema that says, I can do this. Self-determination is, again, working towards that empowerment. What is it that you want to do and how can you do it in a way that helps you feel safe, secure, and loved? Encouraging people each day to spend 20 minutes focusing on what went right that day. Most of us can find 20 minutes that we can set aside, you know, the critical monsters and just focus on, all right, let me think about what went right today. There's been a fair amount of research that has shown that people, especially adolescents, who journal for 20 minutes a day on what went right and what they did well that day have significant improvements in their um, depression and anxiety symptoms. We want to have people notice if they tend to be hypercritical of themselves, um, if they tend to be tell themselves they're stupid, or if they tell themselves that they're not worthy, we want to have them notice those things and alter, you know, what would it take to develop a schema of acceptance and contentment? One of the things that, you know, we've talked about before is asking them, would you say this? Would you be critical of someone else who did the exact same thing? And most of the time people would say, of course not. Well, so why are you accepting of other people and content with them, perfections and imperfections and all, and you're not accepting and content with yourself? We want to help them identify areas in which they're competent. None of us is competent in everything. So helping them identify those areas of competence and then those areas of, for lack of a better word, defectiveness, evaluate whether they're worth putting the energy and effort into altering. And if they are, okay, how do we do it? You know, if they don't like something about themselves and it's really important to them to change, how can they do that? We want to help them look at, and some of this is cultural, independence versus dependence. How much independence do they want? How much independence do they feel like they need? And how much dependence do they have? I mean, you can go all the way to the other end of the spectrum to dependent personality disorder. You know, that's too far on the dependent side. We want to help people figure out what they have the capability of doing and evaluate their identity as an individual. For self-control self versus lack of self-control and sub subjugation, we do want them to evaluate how much of what you do is because you want to do it is you living authentically versus you being a chameleon to try to get someone else's approval. And if they believe that they have to be a chameleon to be loved, then that is another area that we can address in, in counseling, you know, helping them see maybe how they hold other people to different standards than they hold themselves, helping them identify the qualities about them that are lovable. Schema are lenses through which we predict and interpret situations. They are only as good as the knowledge and understanding of the situation that the person has at the time. Ten years down the road, they may go back and look at that schema that they formed and go, oh, that really wasn't very accurate. Um, because now looking back, hindsight's twenty twenty. we know this. Um, looking back, seeing a bigger picture, they may have much different rev revelations about what happened. Schema often need to be altered as we gain new information. So being willing 
to allow those schema to evolve as new information is provided is also really important. And being aware of some of the things that can cause inaccurate schema, such as that emotional valence, so people can make a conscious effort to, for example, notice the positive and the negative in situations so they have a more balanced view of what's going on when they're forming that's are there any questions alrighty everybody I want you to have a great weekend now remember next week we have the Monday Tuesday class that's the last time we're going to be altering the days for quite a while um, because I have one more Chicago trip but then after that uh, we will be sticking to that to our normal Tuesday Thursday for quite a while okay everybody have a great weekend I'll see you later if this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.